Hello and welcome to The Arc, episode number five. I'm Adam Sabatoffs. And I'm Joy Savory. We're so thankful that you joined us today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Hayden Shaw, the author of Sticking Points, which is a Tindo book, and his new book, Generational IQ. And both of these books have to do with the working together of generations. The first, Sticking Points, is how to get the four generations working together in the 12 places they come apart. And Hayden specifically talks about the corporate world. And then Generational IQ takes a little bit of a different spin. Yeah, it talks a little bit more about um, in the church and in Christianity in general. There's been a lot of articles that I've read about how millennials don't go to church and how they're ruining the church. And he clears that up and talks about more, more about how you need, a, you need to have a generational IQ and know about the different generations that are in your church to make it function better. Mm-hmm. And one of the first points he makes is that we should make accurate generalizations, not stereotypes, as those aren't helpful. And he actually quotes Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock says, while the individual man is an insoluble puzzle, in the aggregate he becomes a mathematical certainty. You can, for example, never foretell what any one man will do, but you can say with precision what an average number will be up to. Individuals vary, but percentages remain constant. And so the point is, we don't get into trouble generalizing, we really get into trouble making inaccurate generalizations. So from this point, Hayden moves on to talk about each generation, some of their sticking points, positives and negatives, and then how each generation can work together. And I'm sure that you don't have any of the negatives of your generation, right? <laughs> You know, I am a millennial. I am I was born in the 90s and I will say that I don't associate completely with that generation. I do find myself identifying with their desire to be the change and to learn new things and to be an activist or an activator. But there are certain things like uh, an affinity for technology or some of the top music choices and shows I don't have a strong affinity for. So I could say that I respect all generations <laughs> and um, associate with the millennial most strongly. Yeah, I'm, I'm what they call a cusper, which I'm technically a millennial, but I also I'm born in kind of the in-between years between Gen X and millennials, so I can kind of relate to both. Um, and I, one example I remember when I first started working here at Tyndale is the new iPhone came out right before I started working here and I got the second generation one and I was one of on, only two people in the company that had an iPhone and people would make fun of me for checking email or looking things up during meetings and then just a couple years later I don't see a person without an iPhone or another smartphone in meetings mm -hmm. so that was a stereotype st stereotype of millennials but it's something that now everyone is mm -hmm. a part of so mm -hmm. you can't stereotype people because we will break free from it that's <laughs> true <laughs> and you know just to give you a few numbers uh currently millennials are well i should say when this book was written millennials had the highest percentage of people in the world and that was 27.5 percent and so the closest generation to that is baby boomers they had 26 percent and then down the line gen xers new generation and traditionalists and adam i think you were mentioning a little bit ago that when you started working 
the generational landscape look different than it does now? Yeah, when I first started here, I was kind of in the new generation, the millennials, but I've been here for eight years and now the cusper thing kind of comes out. Now I work um, with millennials who are younger with me right out of college. I've been out of college for 10 years and there's people who have been here for 15 or 20 years and I don't really fit into that group. So it's interesting having to sort of bridge the gap between those two generations where I'm helping the older uh, generations understand and learn more about the younger generations and how they interact. Mm -hmm. And that really touches on the issue of communication because based on what generation you're in, communication may look different or you may be familiar with one form or another. And I'm just looking, there's a chapter on communication in Sticking Points and for millennials, uh, Hayden says it like this, I send a text message, vowels being optional, or an instant message. And I replay the speech online or connect on a social networking site and ask, did you really just leave me a voicemail? <laughs> and that is in great contrast with some of the others, like for example, the Gen Xers. Yeah, what are memos? I send an email or an, or an instant message, search online for a summary of the speech and meet virtually. Mm -hmm. uh, this reminds, this is where I definitely fit in with millennials because I looked at my phone bill last night and I used approximately three of my phone minutes because I'm always either texting or doing like Skype uh, video chat or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't talk on the phone anymore. Right. And compared to traditionalists, this is quite a change. They love memos, even sending letters, listening to a speech or calling. Um, I find that a lot of our colleagues who are traditionalists or even baby boomers will come by and visit people's offices uh, instead of sending an email. And to be honest, there's a lot that I can learn from that. And I, I remember when I was reading this book, I was had just changed positions and was honestly a little bit timid and preferred to write emails because it didn't seem as confrontational. And I realized that there is a benefit to meeting face-to-face, -face, and sometimes that's where you can be most productive. Yeah, there's a lot that can be lost in just text communication. Mm -hmm. So right now we're going to listen to a talk that Hayden Shaw gave at Tyndale earlier this year where he talks about his new book, Generational IQ, and what inspired it. I think you'll really enjoy it. He's a fantastic speaker. So remember to check out both of Hayden's books, Sticking Points and Generational IQ at Tyndale.com or wherever books are sold. Right now, Christians are freaking out over a whole collection of things that require, intelli require intelligence, generational intelligence. Not smarts, but intel. The ability to take all, that fa all those facts, listen, sort out the noise, like the intelligence community says, sort out the noise and say, hmm, yep, that makes sense. And, but those two things seem contradictory. I mean, I just published for Huffington Post a, a column on why does generational research contradict? And it's because, first of all, there's 85 million of them and they don't fit in a box. And secondly, there's you got to sort through a lot of detail before it begins to work into a pattern. And who's got 400 to 1,000 hours? Like I could say, anybody can be a generation expert if you'll just put about 1,000 hours into the research. And who's got that time? That's why we're happy to pay doctors, isn't it? Should I freak out or not about this? 
And there's a bunch of stuff we freak out over. People ask me these questions. Okay, let me just run through the th this from the first chapter. Is Christianity really going to be dead in three generations? Why is my 20-something still in the basement? <laughs> Have you seen the economy lately? It's called emerging adulthood. First time, first time in history, sociologists are identifying a life stage called emerging adulthood. Um, sticking points was, uh, um, is recommended by the... Air Force as one of their 13 books last year to read. And so I, because of it, was invited in to talk to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Martin Dempsey. And because 70% of the military is millennial, that was a big topic. By the way, he wanted to know about the spiritual life of the generations more than he wanted to know about anything else. Because he said, suicide is one of our biggest concerns and we know that religious soldiers kill themselves less than non-religious soldiers what do we do? The millennials aren't going to church. So even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is trying to figure out, and the chaplains are trying to figure out what they do in a more pluralistic world to try to prevent suicide. I said, General, you and your staff need to get really familiar with the literature on emerging adulthood, and you need to get familiar with it fast, because half of the negative criticisms that are lodged against millennials are actually a product of a new life stage that will apply to any of the generations coming forward and not just that of this age cohort group. By the way, if I were a publisher and I was wanting to reach millennials, I would get really familiar with the literature on emerging adulthood. Does that make sense? Because it describes what the future generations will be dealing with as well as distinctives. And the good news is we're going to cover three chapters in the book because it's something that Christians don't talk about much. Is it even possible for young people to, to wait for sex, for marriage, when they don't marry until 28? My next-door neighbor, if you've ever seen Ozinga um, concrete trucks, my next-door neighbor is an Ozinga kid. And uh, his wife, we were at our church, was in the women's Bible study. About 70 women meet. They sit at tables. They usually do a Beth Moore book. Every other one's a Beth Moore book. It's a women's Bible study, right? And so um, um, they've got their, their Beth Moore book, and their, the topic of sex and waiting comes up. And she was stunned that of these younger women, you know, many of them in their early 30s. Here's what they said. I just don't think it's possible. No matter how much you love God, I don't think it's possible to wait till 28. I don't think my children will make it. She was stunned, you know. If in the house of the Lord, we don't think it's possible. You following me here? Christians don't even talk about that one because that one's too scary. We don't even bring it up. Now that marriage is 28 for men and 26 and a half for women, what do we say? How do you explain it now that we're living so much longer? Um, how do it make any sense? We also... Um, one of the questions they ask is, how do I pass on my faith to my children when they don't respond to the things I find most meaningful? I love my youth group. I can't make my kids go. Or one guy whose son was having doubts in college buys mere Christianity because it helped him so much. And his son says to his friend, this is so rational. The West is so focused on rational approaches to truth. I don't buy it. That's not where I go for truth. In fancy talk, he bought a book that made sense in the modernist age when it was all about science and gave it to an exer who was there on the hinge with postmodernism. And 
Now, you can't use those words in a book for everyday people. We had to come up with different ways of saying it. We call it true for you, but not for me. That's how we summarize what postmodernism is. But you know what? If parents, sorry, the last book was funny. This one makes me cry. If parents don't understand what's different in the things their kids, the questions their kids are asking, they love them, but they say the wrong thing. They send the wrong help. If we don't get generational intelligence, we, we overreact to the small things. We miss the big things, and we propose the wrong things. And his son stares at mere Christianity and goes, what? And by the way, did he even like women? And his dad couldn't figure out what, what do you do when they don't respond to the same thing? One of the questions they ask is, what do you do when my kid's walking away from their faith? And I sat there with a woman crying. She said, I, and I tell the youth minister, you've got to talk to him. But he's 24. He's got to talk to him. He needs somebody to befriend him. What's going to happen to him? Now, that's the one when I speak in churches where people, the tears just roll down people's faces. My kid's walking away. I do not know what else to say or do. I probably did the wrong thing because I went all spider monkey on him, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> you know, there's great research out there from University of Southern California, 40-year study out of University of Southern California that Oxford published a book on. So none of us have really heard of it. 40-year study on multiple generations and why some families are successful in passing on their faith and others not. You ever heard that when a dad attends church, you're twice as likely to have kids in church? It came out of that study. It was one of the things that came out 20 years ago. There's actually a lot more stuff in there than that. It's some of the best stuff on research. It's just, unless, you got, unless you're a geek and have time to look around in it, some of the very best stuff um, could help some families not do the wrong thing when they're dealing with that. What about my church? Is my church going to die? Why won't the young people come to my church? You ready for the other question that never gets asked? Now, this isn't a church book, but the question that doesn't get asked is, if we reach the young people, what do we tell the folks that have been here for 75 years? <laughs> Thank you for your money. Now, shut up. <laughs> Can I have a hymn? Yes, but Tim, Chris Tomlin's going to do it, and there's going to be this major guitar riff in the middle, and it's not going to sound like what you're used to. And that's all you're getting. <laughs> now, sister, let's talk about your estate because this church is going to need some cash because young people don't give much. You know, one of the questions we don't talk about in Christianity is how do you sell it now that we've got four gener generations, five on, on the way with the younger folks? Basically, what we're saying is we've got to reach the younger generation. We've got to reach the younger generation. And there's a lot of books on that, is there not? And how many, how many grandparents don't want to reach the younger generation? What they want to know is, what's going to be left of my church when that happens? Am I going to have to die living another 20 years going, I hate this place? Here's the point. Because we live 30 years longer. We talked about the last time I was in chapel. We live 30 years longer, and that's God's greatest blessing. The biggest challenge we have in churches right now is that extra 30 years because it used to be people died off younger and churches naturally changed to adjust to a younger generation and now there will be people who go to hell 
because we live 30 years longer. Millions of people will go to hell because we live 30 years longer. It is God's greatest blessing of our lifetime. But until we figure out what to do with it and ask better questions, does this make sense? We, churches are like, I'm losing. But they either, whatever we do, either the older end leaves or the younger end drops out. What do we do? Yeah. Well, I get excited about this because my wife said, yeah, I put up with sticking points because I could get to this book. I do the business one first because if you're in the business person, you're not taken seriously if you do the religious book first. Dallas Willie taught me that. You have to write your academic book first, then you can speak to the church. She goes, I put up with sticking points so that you could write this one. This is the one that God put you on the planet for, to begin to give some generational intelligence because every one of those questions makes sense if we understand what the generational research shows. You know, there is nothing in Scripture that says we have to understand generational research. Nobody goes to heaven because of it. It's not a commandment. It's just a lot harder to pass the faith on to the next generation unless we get it. We make everything harder than it needs to be. And it freaks us out. So let's take two questions out of that whole list. Let's take two questions. Um, first, is Christianity going to die? Well, the subtitle, which went on forever, um, no doubt about it. And that was shortened down. Because <laughs> I wanted to put, the future could be bright. And they said, pick a position there, dude. In a subtitle, you have to seem confident. I said, okay, that's what first chapters are for, is to clarify the provocative statements. And it really can be, but it may not be, right? Is Christianity going to be gone in three generations? No, for two reasons. The first is it's statistical balderdash. And secondly, Jesus. Let's start with statistics first, because Christ is Lord, he'll come last. Does that make sense? The cross over statistics. And... Um, um, so let's just run through some slides. And these aren't even fancy slides, graphics people. I want to apologize to all graphics people. Um, I have a slide that you can fill in the blank on, and I just wrote it up. So uh, um, there's no good graphics, and I just want to apologize to graphics folks for this. Here's the point. When we come to Jesus, we bring our generation with us. There's no way around it. And um, we don't, when we don't understand generations, we react to the small things, ignore the big things, propose the wrong things, but I already said that. The, I just thought that Lisa would be proud of that because it's pithy and tweetable, right? <laughs> the, I did get the briefing from John and team about a year and a half ago, and um, um, so I just wanted you to know I was paying attention. Here's the summary in the chapter on is the church going down the tank. Here's the summary. It's not as bad as we've heard, but it was never as good as we thought. One of the reasons we're freaking out is we thought Christianity was in a lot better shape Evangelical, fundamentalistic, charismatic Christianity, conservative Christianity was a lot bigger than it is. It was not as bad as we've heard, but it was never as good as we thought, and it's declining, especially with millennials. I'll just spend a couple of minutes, because I don't know, people in the publishing space who are trying to reach people with the gospel, with the Bible, understanding who you're reaching, is a fairly relevant thing. 92% of people believe in God, and 75% told Gallup they're Christians. Have you ever seen 75% of the United States at Easter or Christmas? What it means is that people lie about bad things. I should go to church, but I don't. And 30% still claim to go to church. The unchurched are more open than we have thought 
40% of the younger unchurched are open to talk about their faith compared to 30% of people over 35. Millennials are actually more willing to discuss their faith. Now, if they don't go to church, 60% of them are like, oh, whatever. Christians. Oh, and especially conservative Christians. Yep, I think your marketing people are probably about ready to put me in the 1% of difficult people to work with. Because of that fact, um, I have to be very careful, right? If you're in the generation space, that's the diversity space. And as I like to joke, you can be anything in the diversity space uh, except an evangelical or a Mormon. Because those are haters. And so you got to be very careful what you do in that space because they're like, what? So of all things, the television show, Jane, um, TV, called and they wanted to do a show on generational couples um, with marital problems living in the same house. And they found me because of the book as a generational expert who'd had some family counseling background. Um, and they pitched it, and I don't think it's going anywhere. They're reworking it now. Be patient with us is what they said. The, um, plus, they like my wife a lot better in the trial. Um, oh, so you're the serious one, and she's the fun one. No. Probably. I said to my wife, well, this will never happen when they read the chapter on sex. Because in the chapter, I'm radical enough to say that problem Christians have with marriage, selling marriage, is that we try to sell that if you wait and have a Christian marriage, it's going to be a wonderful marriage. And sex is going to be better, and your marriage will be sparkly and wonderful. And guess what? Christians are people with baggage and problems, and the promise of grace is that two people who are having homicidal fantasies can figure out how to live in a sacred love. The message is not it'll be gooder, although statistically it is. The message is it's possible and worth it. I mean, look at what younger generations are looking at. If we live till 90 and they marry at 28, in 1900, the average age for marriage was 23, and people died at 48. If you didn't like your husband, you just needed to wait seven more years till he croaked. <laughs> the average person never hit their 25th silver anniversary in 1900. Today, you're like, I have to be with you forever. <laughs> Please, Jesus, take one of us now. In the first three years of my marriage, my wife will tell you she would pray this. God, take him, because I'm not the jerk. <laughs> when people have to wait till 28, we've been, what, we're, what we've been selling, some good theology of marriage and love, I think has a better fighting chance. We've just been explaining the wrong thing. I think the gospel is just better, right? So 40% of the unchurched, they're open to talk about it. 60% have to be reached in a different way. Have to be reached in a different way. All right, only 85% of 18 to 29-year-olds believe in God. That's the bad news. There's been a drop. 
2 to 85. There's more agnostics with millennials. Basic theological beliefs haven't changed in 40 years. <laughs> and they were never as high as we thought. We thought it was a Christian nation and Christian young people. It was socially required to go to church and to do Christian things. But they weren't as Christian as we thought. Basic has not changed in 40 years. Evangelicals are less than 10% of the population. That's the big surprise for most folks. But I heard we were 40%. That's because 40% have told Gallup they're born again. But when you ask them some questions, when Gallup starts asking questions about born again, do you believe that the Bible is author uh, authoritative? Do you have you shared your faith with someone else? Classic evangelical categories, that drops off to uh, anywhere from 7 to 20%, depending on who you talk to. We thought we were a lot bigger, so it looks like when the research comes out, we're a lot smaller. Turn to the person next to you and say, hmm. <laughs> Bigger's better. Friends, you had, the good news is, um, you guys have been very successful in a smaller market than you thought you had, right? The bad news is, it is a smaller market than we thought we had. Yeah, and so Christians are like, really? Well, this is why Christians can storm Disney 15 years ago. You've got to quit being gay friendly. And Disney went, whatever, we have Mickey Mouse. And basically, we threw all these Christians at it, and there weren't enough of it to... Plus, the younger generations went, my kids want to see Mickey. What you do with your policies is right now not my concern. Paying $27 for a hot dog is my concern. <laughs> and so we threw our weight around in the moral majority era, and it was in many ways the last gasps of this idea that we had a Christian America. And we're all freaking out that what happened to the Christian consensus? Well, it had been evaporating for a while, and now what we have is true for you, not for me. Judge not, lest you be judged. The only Bible verse the average millennial knows. Right? Now we can pout over it, or we can say them's the facts, and uh, begin to look at the questions that come up. So what should we worry about? If we don't worry about Christianity declining, because the, the statistics say it's not going to disappear, and Jesus had a verse. Anybody remember what Jesus said about the gates of Hades? Shall not what? Yeah. Jesus is pretty sure the church is not going to disappear in three generations. Would you please pass that on? <laughs> now, here's my worry. My worry is that there is a hollowing out process that statistically have been taking place. And um, it's been called moralistic therapeutic deism by Christian Smith and researchers. We couldn't call it that in the book, so we called it be good, feel good, live your life. The surprising thing in his research the best, is that there's no difference statistically between the kids that grew up in very conservative churches in Sunday school and the kids that grew up in Catholic churches or mainline churches that are a little less serious about things. There's no statistical difference in whether or not they would believe in the God that revealed himself through history and scripture. And this tiny little shrunk down piece of wussy deity that is this moralistic, therapeutic, from a distance, God is watching kind of God that we call in when we're sad and doesn't really demand or ask anything of us. 
My worry is not that we won't have churches. My worry is that we won't have churches worth going to. Because the real God is so much better than what most people believe. United States and Canada are two of the biggest mission fields in the world because the real God is amazing. That God, I don't blame millennials for saying, okay, yeah, I'm Christian, whatever. That's the best that God provides is whatever. There is no Shekinah of glory. There is no kneeling. There is no, I can't breathe. There is no God saying, the best I can do, Moses, is show you my backside. Because if I were to show you my face at Indiana Jones, there's none of that. And so we say, hey, we need somebody to work in the nursery. And they go, oh, uh, no, the God of glory stands over this child. Yes, the diaper's muddy. We don't teach junior high because somebody has to do it. We teach junior high because the God of the universe is worth teaching. Does this make any sense? Problem is, I was a philosophy theology major, and so we had to tuck that all in because Farrar was just like freaking out. No philosophy in a book for people in the pew. So we had to rename it all because if people don't understand what shifted, right? People say, let's go back to the good old days. What they think about is American Gothic. Remember that picture? What they don't realize is in the Chicago Art Institute, there's also a Picasso from the next year of this woman in a chair. When they say, let's go back to the good old days, they don't point to Picasso, which happened the same time, 1931. They're pointing back to American Gothic, which was dying while a whole new way of looking at the world, which came to fruition in the boomers and is now full flower today. If we don't get that, we can't even talk to millennials. So I snuck it in like a pill. You give the dog in some baloney. Because I knew if we were going to write a book on what you got to know about your kid's philosophy, <laughs> um, the target market would go, I'll give that to my minister. So we had to sneak it in and make it relevant because if we don't understand it, we can't talk to them. They ask different questions. That's one of the reasons churches have trouble reaching the mall is they ask different questions. All right. Five generations. We've never dealt with it before. The nuns. How many of you have heard of the nuns? N-O-N-E-S. In summary, it's not nearly as bad as we think because it was never as good as we thought. People lied. Oh, I'm Christian when their affiliation was, I never go. Today, people don't feel like you're obligated to go to a church, and so they're simply more honest. No, I have no affiliation. And do you know that? Seven million people who say they're nuns attend church at least once a month. But it's not cool to have a denomination. How many of your churches have renamed themselves? We're not a reformed church. We're the community church of whatever. And Episcopalians fell over themselves to change their name, didn't they? Anglican school, Episcopalian was like, no, we're not Episcopalian. We're for everybody. Until the membership class, you're like, oh, we're Episcopalian for everybody. <laughs> That's just what's happening is people don't want the labels. Plus, there's a lot of baggage with the denominational labels that younger generations resent. Does this make sense? 
So they're like, we don't want this. So they don't claim anything even though they attend church regularly and volunteer and give. Now, are there a lot more nuns? Yes, and the millennials make up more of the nuns. They've left the church and they may not come back. Here's the biggest reason, procreation. People come back to church when they procreate and the millennials are, more, millennials are staying single, more exers stayed single. And they're marrying and having children much later, which gives them a lot more years to get out of the habit and to harden the way they look at the world. And so the big debate with church sociologists is whether or not the millennials will come back. You got Rodney Stark down there at Baylor saying, you bet, it's the same thing that's always happened. Churches are wasting a bunch of money trying to get millennials back. And then others are saying, yeah, but this may, not, this may, be, this may be the one that because of the time frame and because we're in a different era and thought processes may not come back. All right, more singles, marry later, think we're judgmental. That's a surprise to you all, isn't it? When I speak on this, I give people an assignment. If we had a little more time, I'd make you turn to a person and explain why a person should wait to have sex without using a single scripture. As soon as we say, the Bible says, it worked for Billy Graham, and now it's absolutely opposite of that. Haters. Jesus was a hater. No, Jesus was a lover. You all are haters. We can do a better job of being less judgmental or at least using phrases that seem judgmental. If the God of the universe truly is amazing, then the laws he gave us were priceless, right? And they're for our best. But we start off because of the Christian consensus by we start off with the Bible verse rather than starting off with the reason. How about this, that we start giving the reason and then we bring the Bible verse in later. Oh, and by the way, that's what the Bible said. We get a better chance at having conversation. And then they're turned off by our involvement in politics and then be good, feel good, God is watching. All right, emerging adults are, le um, let's look at one more question. So that's uh, um, statistically, um, it's one of the questions people ask the most. And because it's the first one, Christianity isn't, isn't dying. We uh, wanted to cover it. Um, for those of you who are like, wow, that's more statistics than we've ever had in a chapel. He had jokes the last time. <laughs> Sorry, we're about done now. Um, uh, we're done with that section. One of the other things we want to look at is what do we do with kids? My 23-year-old is less interested in church or in their faith. What do we do? What are you supposed to say? What are you supposed to do? Well, here's what the research shows on millennials leaving. Emerging adults, 18 to 28, are less religious than teenagers and older adults. Always have been. You know, more people leave, uh, are, people have less confidence in their faith um, when they are uh, right out of high school. And that's been the same for 40 years. That's not, not a new trend. They get out of high school, the first three years out of high school. It's one of the reasons why 70% Ed Stetzer, so this, Ed Stetzer is not an over-the-top researcher. <laughs> as Ed Stetzer said to me, if I would be as over the top as some of the other researchers out there and how I explain things, I would have sold a lot more books. The, uh, he said, I don't yell fire in a, uh, in a theater. Um, but he's 70%. So when Ed Stetzer comes back and says 70% of 18 to 22-year-olds quit attending church for at least a year, if you've got four kids like I do, two-thirds come back. 
Isn't that encouraging? However, they're all deeply committed to be good, feel good, live your life, and they compartmentalize their faith and lifestyle choices. It's one of the reasons people say, I love Jesus, and I like sex. Uh, I just was working with a chamber of commerce and had two 28- and 24-year-olds, and one of them said, my mom says to me, why are you moving in with this guy? She goes, did I? She was a Catholic school teacher. I said, mm, this is probably causing some problems. She goes, yeah. She says, did I fail you? Did I not teach you Catholic guilt? And this 28-year-old said to me, I looked at, I said, Mom, you did. I feel guilty, but then whatever. That was her exact quotation just last week. Whatever. You got to be practical. You have to be realistic. And so um, what do we do? Well, this research from University of Southern California is great because here's some good news. If the mother and father stay married and are both involved in church, not just attend, but are involved, those families have 73% of their children stay within the faith of the family. Single highest numbers. Evangelicals, fundamentalists, Mormons, and more conservative Jews do much better than Catholics and mainline Protestants in terms of the numbers. 53% um, of families have children stay in the same faith. So that's a pretty scary figure, isn't it? Okay. In that, that means there's 47% who aren't. Um, what do we do to keep our kids in the faith? When they turn into the teenage years, we let them ask questions. The single biggest thing you can do is let them ask questions and love on them. When the, when the parents are distant and emotionally disconnected, but theologically rigid, nothing so predicts that the child will leave and never come back as that. So I have parents come to me and say, what do I do? My kid's walking away. I said, you need to turn on the love and shut off the preaching. They are young adults, not your kids anymore, and you are trying to hold them close like what you did when they were nine, and you have got to fight every last instinct you have, shut your whole spinal column down and think this one through. Or you, they're like, but I can't stop. I The thought of going to heaven without my kids. Folks, statistically speaking, one of them isn't going to go. Statistically speaking, more than one isn't going to be in heaven. I pray every day. That is not the case. But so do the parents whose kids have walked away. Are you hearing me? Why won't God answer our prayer? Why won't the sovereign God answer our prayer? <clears throat> Who loves our kids more? I kept on my wall a poster that said, every time I think I fully surrender to God, he asked me for something else I don't want to give up. I don't want to give up my kids. I don't want to surrender them to God. They're mine. I said that to a woman, you're going to have to give your children to God. 
they have to look Jesus in the eye and decide if they're going to love him. However you believe theologically, that works out, right? Okay? Free will is why God won't make them. He would rather them reject him than take their choice away. And as parents, what we want to do more than anything else is take their choice away. I don't care what happens, you're going to heaven. I don't care if you want to be there. You can sit and pout. We're going to be in heaven together. You following me? I think godly parenting is the hardest thing on the planet because godly parenting allows our kids to reject the one thing that is most important on our entire world, which is the God we love. Is there nothing harder than that to place them in God's hands? But until we can do that, we do the very thing that pushes them away, which is we use every opportunity to point out what they're doing is wrong. We leave them books and verses, and it just keeps shoving. The one thing the research shows not to do is to be more rigid and more resistant. You ready? Some of you have made your peace with this. Half of them that do come back go to a different denomination. You raise them with contemporary because you grew up feeling like, for crying out loud, if God loved me, they'd make that organist stop. <laughs> and then they don't just find an organist, they go find bells and smells, right? They show up in a, a New Orthodox or an Anglican church, or they go to a, they go to a um, emerging church, and they've got incense, and you're like, what are you doing? Takes you guys 20 minutes to get ready to pray. Well, yes, because it is a holy God. And then they start quoting stuff in the early church fathers, and you're like, hello, you're killing me. <laughs> you know what? Sign me up. It's not what I think on those questions, <clears throat> but I have no trouble visiting the incense part of heaven because last I knew, it's burning up there, right? Last I knew, it's burning up there. I have no trouble building that part of heaven if they're there. Would you please raise your hand and promise me? Hayden, I promise. So many people work in the literature field, contracts, editing. You don't promise until you see it in writing, do you? Huh? <laughs> Nobody's putting their hand up. Yeah. Hayden, I promise. My children, my siblings, my parents... I will chill in the name of God, despite the fact I have many books at my disposal. I will chill so that God can call them. It has never been your job to convince them that Jesus is amazing. Jesus does just fine without us because it is amazing. That's why be good, feel good, and live your life is the biggest enemy the church will face in the next 30 years. I think the research on that is unequivocal because that God is not amazing and he doesn't shine brilliantly and the Jesus we love shines brilliantly. He just says, look, 
lift me up. You just lift me up. My job to call people. When it's our own children, it takes every last spiritual energy to give them to God and let God be God. To parent like God is incredibly hard. <sighs> but prodigals do come home. Amazingly, the guy that did this 40-year research project, he was the son of an evangelical covenant minister who left, occasionally dabble in church. He said, my own mother worried that I, she would not see me in heaven. After my father died, she'd say, I'm not going to see you in heaven. Oh, mom, chill. One day he woke up missing hymns. What is wrong with these people? Him. I woke up missing hymns. Goes into an African-American church, listens to the hymns. The sunlight's coming in there in Southern California. And he said, I was surprised by joy. Prodigals come home, he says. Never give up hope. Never go spider monkey. Do a lot more listening than you do preaching. Ask a lot more questions. The good news is we're going to, my aunt said to me, is this going to be one of those books that tell about the problem and don't tell you what to do? My aunt's been a minister's wife for uh, um, 60 years. I said, no, actually, there's going to be some practical stuff in there. She goes, good, because I'm sick of those books. I don't even read them anymore. I said, well, good for you. Of the actual questions. What kind of questions do you bring up in conversations? Because if we start asking questions rather than having answers, we actually fit a world where true for you and not for me. Well, according to that clock, I got to stop. So I got to tell you about Lola. I won't quit because that's the last story in the book. The, um, I got excited about this topic because I lived it. Um, I knew there were generational tensions growing up. We even had a split in my home church because the boomers wanted things to change and the traditionalists wouldn't. So they called it a church plant, but it was basically a split that had a church plant named on it. Now, the good news is both churches are thriving now because as Elmer Towns once said about Baptists, he said, you know, Baptists are like cats. You throw them in a bag, they fight a lot, and then they have more cats. And um, <laughs> so as Elmer Towns said, God bless church splits because... That was half of the growth in the traditional era where the church splits, right? Um, God's sovereign. He does what he wants with his, with his word, right? It doesn't come back void even when we bungle it. So I knew there were problems. Plus, my old man would call rock and roll music. I'd be listening to B.J. Thomas, and he'd go, turn that off. That's the corruption of the teenage mind. Oh, you have never heard Led Zeppelin, have you, Dad? <laughs> you want to know corruption? Frodo lives, huh? Yeah. I'm in Bible college, should be paying attention in a night class on youth ministry, and this book we had to read had a chapter on why the boomers are the way they are and reaching young people today, and this sociologist goes through the history of the generation gap, and I didn't pay another attention. You ever had those moments when the whole world opens up and suddenly you see it? It's like, where has this been? Suddenly everything made sense, and I, I'm like, this is what I want to do. This explains... So our generation isn't just, because everything I'd heard was good and bad, moral differences. Older generations don't get it. Younger generations are lame. So I go, doing this youth ministry, uh, first youth ministry right out of Bible college. I'm trying to be relevant. 
We got the reach out Bible, right? I told you about that last time, right? We're being relevant. And um, it, was all, it, it was in the big hair era. It was great because I could, I, when I dealt with young women in the youth group, because they'd be chatting just like sophomores do, and I'd say, ladies, if you don't quit talking, I'm going to snap your bangs. Anybody remember the Aquanet era, right? <laughs> one bang going down, one bang going straight up. Yeah, I just, I would, you have to make an example of one of them. So I grabbed her Aquanet bang and cracked it, and it then parted on the hinge. And after that, they believed me that Shaw, Shaw take down your bang. Yeah. I figured you couldn't get sued for just cracking a bang. That was the year I did it in. And so we were trying some things that at the point then were fairly, were fairly new. And um, it worked at summer camp. Our kids came all back all excited. So I preached a sermon about generational differences and reaching the next generation. And, and six people came forward, including three adults. And I was like, wow, this stuff works. It was at my 24 years, the highlight day of ministry until that evening because Jesus didn't love us and we had Sunday evening services, right? Anybody remember the olden days? Didn't have to wear a tie, though. You could go without a tie. We were really letting loose. And so the, um, the senior minister got up and preached a sermon in which he rebutted every one of my points. So what had seemed like a wonderful glowing day now turned into a nightmare. Farrar said, no, you can't use the word heresy, but that's what he called me. He said, boys and girls, that's how he referred to the youth group. He said, boys and girls, when Hayden says this, he is a heretic. It was a fun night in First Christian Church of Joliet. <laughs> After the service was over, he was mentally ill. He, he, was, a, he was neurotic. He was mentally ill. Um, and um, he, it's one of those churches that has the... Uh, Split, two pews and an aisle down the middle. He walks down the aisle, and we all watch him walk out. He finishes his sermon and walks out, and then he goes into the lobby, and we see him open the front door, because it's one of those straight shot things into the front door, and his wife was in the car, the getaway car, and he walks through the door. We all, the whole congregation is staring, and he gets into the car and takes off. Because like I said, he was neurotic. He, was, he had his issues. All these people are come up to me going, are you okay? Are you? I don't know. The youth group is all crying. Yeah, the youth group is crying. And then the, elder, the chairman of the elders says, can you wait? We're going to go upstairs and talk about what to do. I said, yeah. <laughs> My wife said, I told you not to stay here. I told you. I said, we may lose our jobs. She goes, good. He's nuts, honey. But I was stubborn. That's what happens when you go to seminary. You're stubborn. No, Jesus thinks that we can make this work. No, Jesus thinks he's nuttier than a hatter was my wife's position. <laughs> and then my, my landlord, the people who gave us a, an apartment for like 200 bucks a month, she came up to me and said, you know he's right, don't you? Everybody else was comforting. She said, you know he's right. You made a lot of excuses for why young people don't have to be holy. I said, Lola, thank you for your concern for the young people we have in our church. I know you mean this um, with all, I know you mean this because you care about them. She said, you better believe I do. She said, hey, you ought to listen to what he said. <clears throat> so Lola befriends my wife on Facebook 20 years later. My wife's like, Lola Mitchell befriended me. 
And then she writes my wife and says, ooh, can I get a copy of Hayden's book? I want to give it to my son for his birthday. Well, I said, you will not believe what just happened. Well, I was working from home that day, and my wife was gone. Lola shows up to pick it up. She goes, will you sign it? Yeah. I said, how are you, Lola? I said, what are you going to do with this book? Well, first I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to give it to Jim. So I said to Ginger Kobaba, who, by the way, is so much fun for a ghostwriter, um, uh, I said, I think I got the concluding story. So I called Lola and said, Lola, why did you want that book? She said, well, you know, don't you think that if you don't understand your grandkids, you're not going to be? She said, we had a big old fight in the church, and I was on the wrong side of it, and a lot of people I loved left. Actually, we just sat on two different sides and wouldn't talk to each other, and I realized you can be right and you can be wrong. And I was right on some things, but I was wrong in how I handled it. And now that I have grandkids, they all turned out okay. They wear flip-flops. She said, after I read Sticking Points, what I now ask myself is, is this generational? And then I ask myself, is this wrong? I said, do you remember when you? She goes, yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up or remember it. <laughs> I said, how did you change this? She said, Hayden, don't we all need grace? Can God give grace to a 75-year-old woman who thought everything was right and wrong when sometimes it was just different? We get so scared, like the woman that walks in those scary movies who, who walks downstairs, and we're like, the bad guy's downstairs. Can't you tell from the music that's playing? There's a bad guy downstairs. <laughs> And I've always wondered why, when they're going downstairs, they just don't turn on the light switch. It's not nearly as scary if you turn on the light switch. There's so much stuff out there on the internet. What we need is some generational intelligence. And that's why I love Lola, because Lola just turned on the lights. <laughs>